Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Carmel Valley Conference. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is The Trump Report Card, Myths and Realities. It was recorded on May 5th, 2017. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, you know, I, I, the last two years I've been here and talked about Trump, so I don't want to sound like a retread, but two years ago I suggested whoever was going to be elected was going to have some dilemmas, whether it was the then $18 trillion, now $20 trillion debt, uh, South Korea, Iran. There, part of me wanted Hillary Clinton to uh, be elected to inherit that mess, but only part. And then last year I think I offended some people by suggesting that Many of you being people in private commerce and business, you always go, as I do, 51% is better than the alternative. Donald Trump, for me, was a 51% choice, and therefore I thought that he would, it would be wiser, uh, if you were a conservative, to go with that 51% choice, and he might even win, could win. But today, I'm more interested in how he's done after this, the proverbial 100 days. And uh, if you look at the Republican side, the Republican establishment, intellectual establishment, media establishment, punditry still is very unhappy. I, we were discussing last night George Will's latest column. It says he has almost a cognitive deficit. Brett Stevens can't stand him. He's been gone from the Wall Street Journal now to the New York Times. My colleagues at the National Review still despise him. The funny thing about that is if you look at polls, and we have them now, of the number of people who in the Republican Party who voted for Donald Trump, it's about 92 to 94 percent. And out of that 94 percent, 96 percent of that 94 percent don't regret their vote. What I'm suggesting is that people in my business are completely irrelevant. And they have no influence upon you whatsoever. Or you would have polled differently. In other words, that's, that's quite a sweeping indictment of the National View magazine, the Weekly Standard, some of the editorial writers at uh, the Wall Street Journal and pundits in general. I mean, they're completely irrelevant now, and that's part of the reason they're angry by doubling down. The second group is what I would call the conservative establishment. That's many in this room, Republican establishment, whatever term we would like to use. Uh, I think where we are now is that the obvious character defects of Donald Trump, his late night tweeting, his vulgarity, you've made a collective decision that so far the upside of tax reform, simplification, deregulation, repeal and reform of the AC Act, uh, ACA Act and deterrence abroad billion, outweighs the obvious character. Trumpism is more important than Trump and you're willing to go along with that so far. You wish that he would be sober and judicious you wish maybe it was George W. Bush, or better yet, Jeb Bush, who was doing all these things. But deep down in your dark hearts, you have a sneaking suspicion of those 16 morally superior candidates of Donald Trump in the, in the primary. None of them could have beat Hillary Clinton. And you're also more afraid that the very uncouthness and crudity that he expresses might have been central to his election. And that's a dilemma that we all face. And so the verdict's out. The, uh, most important of these three groups, of course, are the proverbial Reagan Democrats, white working class, the people who destroyed the blue wall and this, the proverbial Rust Belt. Not very many of them. We keep thinking there's millions of them came out, maybe four or five million, but 
take away 150,000 votes or flip them the other way, and Hillary Clinton would have won Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, and with it, the election. So that is a very tenuous, fragile base. And it's dependent on him filling his promises. You saw Steve Bannon the other day. He had a white chalkboard, and everybody said, oh my gosh. He had a, he had a photo op, and the media discovered that in the back of his photo op, he had these promises. They thought it was, he was stupid. He actually set that up. So you could see it said promises fulfilled. And they were things like building the wall, stopping illegal immigration, uh, jaw-boning countries on trade, um, fair but not necessarily unfettered trade, into political correct. All of these issues are very, very important to this very small number of swing voters. If he were to lose those voters, he wouldn't, he wouldn't be reelected. So those three groups, I think, are, again, people in my business don't matter. The establishment Republicans, the verdict's out, but they're willing to go for the issues rather than the person. And as I said, there's these strange little feelings we all have that maybe he did something <laughs> that we don't like but was necessary to win. And then we have these swing uh, blue-collar workers. On the, the Democratic side, it's much different. Did you hear Hillary Clinton the other day? She said she lost for three reasons. First, she said, I take absolute responsibility. And then she didn't by saying, I lost because of misogyny and the fact that I'm a woman. I lost because... Uh, James Comey subverted the election process, and I lost, um, I lost because the Russians tapped into John Podesta's email account. She didn't say, I lost because John Podesta used the word password for his password. And she didn't say that um, I lost, uh, uh, James Comey investigated me because I, I trafficked and classified in. Uh, email on an unsecured server. It's sort of like saying if there hadn't been any ice, the Titanic wouldn't have sunk. If the Japanese hadn't have cheated in using surprise attacks, then we would have won Pearl Harbor. And the world has got so many variables. Donald Trump could have said, I would have won by an extra million votes if it hadn't been for that Access Hollywood leak. That's what character's destiny. We, we have a record. And she lost. We know why she lost. For two reasons. One, that the Obama matrix gin up identity politics and get record number of minority turnout in the big cities and then at least don't have the working class vote for Republicans, but either they're going to stay home or they're not going to vote for Republicans. That was not transferable to Hillary Clinton. In other words, she did not get the level of base support in the big cities, especially the big cities like Milwaukee or uh, Detroit or Philadelphia and Pittsburgh that she needed, but she did turn off with her irredeemable and deplorable, the white working class, and got them out to vote in a way that they would have never voted for Romney or Ted Cruz, just a fact. And even more disturbing for the Democratic Party is that matrix is not transferable to a multimillionaire, 69-year-old white woman, Obama's matrix. It's a one-time trick pony. And this is sort of the, the ordeal that the Democratic Party has. They're thinking, how can we get our base and this new demography without turning off the middle class, which are far more important than one man, one vote, given the electoral system and all these rich electoral states that have these forgotten, these forgotten workers. And they haven't come up with an answer yet. And because this loss lost them 13 Senate seats, 
since Obama was elected, 69 House of Representative seats since Obama was elected, 1,000 state legislators, and most of the governorships, likely the Supreme Court for a generation, they have no power. And they will not have any power, at least for two years, and maybe for four, or maybe even for eight. And that creates a deep sense of frustration. And it, it results in everything from Stephen Colbert or the White House correspondent dinner uh, anger at Trump. But it's not, it's not focused or cherry-picking a federal judge, but they don't have an agenda, and they do not have a mechanism to regain real political power. And that's where they are right now, and they're trying to go back and examine how do we stay the same and win next time. We won the popular vote by three million votes. Trump said, well, you had four million votes in California, so what? You won by four, but in California, you won by three nationally. It was just basically California. Trump could have easily said, it wasn't for California, I would have won. It goes nowhere unless you have a really deep introspective critique of why you lost a working class democratic stronghold in these states. I would say one other thing, and that is, of all the 16 candidates, Trump sensed that there were people where we are right now in the west and eastern coastal corridors who feel that because of a globalized economy and because of what they call knowledge-based or post-industrial professions, activities, insurance, finance, um, high-tech, Hollywood, whatever they are, they're not subject to the downside of globalization. They're not muscular activities. And so whatever, whatever the problem is, it's not going to affect me or you. There's some truth to that. But the people that live in 85% of the geographical expanse of the United States do feel that. And they had a very different view of the so-called benefits of globalization. And they were completely unknown to most of the Republican nominees and to Hillary Clinton. And so he, with his animal cunning, sensed that. And he appealed to them by reworking a lot of Republican issues to the dismay of the establishment, from trade to immigration, et cetera. And I'd like just to take a detour, if I could, and try to give you an emblematic account of what I mean by that. And I think it's frustration in working class or red America is really emblemized by two couples, the Obamas and the Clintons. It's amazing how remarkably alike they both are. Four people. The Obamas and the Clintons both went to the Ivy League, all four of them. All four of them got law degrees with a proper brand, just like a cattle brand, Yale or Harvard. Didn't mean that they really were great lawyers, but they knew how to get branded and where that trajectory would lead to. They're both progressives. They went back to the Midwest where they supposedly grew up, but you got the sense that Bill Clinton no more wanted to stay with Hillary Clinton in Arkansas than Barack Obama and Michelle wanted to stay in Illinois. It was just a mechanism of getting a power base to get back where they always wanted to be was on the New York-Washington coastal corridor where they could navigate with proverbial rich people. They all ran on a sort of anti-wealth, you didn't build it, now's not the time to profit, at some point, you made enough money rhetoric. And yet, as soon as they left office, they cashed in. The Clintons, Bill Clinton was 54 when he left office. Barack Obama was 55. Both of them had wives who were further to the left and much more ambitious. But they also shared one thing that made them different than other presidents. Remember, Jimmy Carter went back to Plains. Ronald Reagan went back to California. Bushes went back to Texas. These were the only two couples that stayed in Washington. 
Bill Clinton always hung out the idea that my wife could be the first female president. And therefore, you better invest in Clinton, Inc., because I could be back and I have power to disperse. And he did a couple of things that are very familiar. He, with that sort of leverage, they did he and she book deals for $25 million. They, built a man, they bought a mansion in Washington along with uh, New York. And he said, basically, Hillary's going to run for Senate. It's amazing how the Obamas copied that same blueprint. They did a his and her book deal, but not for 25, for 60 million. And then they set up a foundation, the Obama Foundation. Out of curiosity, I looked at it this week. If you read the foundation on the website, it's almost exactly word for word of the Clinton Global Initiative. We're out to help the local state and help the world by good deeds. And you get the impression as you read it that the subtext is that maybe Michelle might run for Senate. And maybe she might be a national character. And therefore, the Obamas are not done, but they're a permanent fixture like the Clintons were. And maybe you better do donate to the, uh, the Obama Foundation. And so they, besides the book deal, he went out after saying that you know, Wall Street was it's a time not to profit. He went out and got $400,000, about $30,000 a minute to speak, in the same way that Hillary and Bill did after damning the uh, corrupting influences of wealth. Even right after he went, he didn't quite do the Lolita Express as Bill did, but he went on a sybaratic 30-day uh, jaunt to Tahiti to hang out with Malibu millionaires. Again, not very progressive. So you get the impression that when people see these couples and they lecture everybody about how illiberal and politically incorrect they are and how they have to worry and care for the poor, that they no more cared about the poor in Chicago than they did in Little Rock. And they always saw that as a means to an end, that because they were progressive, they got a pass or they got indemnity insurance from being very self-interested and making a lot of money, almost as if they were saying to us, I suffered so much. Michelle said that. I, they raised the bar on me so much that now I deserve what I get. And I'm going to cash in by dangling the possibility that the Obamas, like the Clintons, will be a permanent political great family. And they adopted the worst. Uh, traits of the Clintons, the Obamas did, and they're almost halfway on that arc to perdition. They really are. We know where it started, we know where it bends, we know where it ends up. Bill Clinton with a Dorian-like gray corrupt face and very bad health, and Hillary Clinton losing two national elections and sacrificing her health, her reputation, her very existence in pursuit of an ambition. And that type of profile got people very upset and they don't like that progressive lecturing and demonstrating and remonstrating with people. I think that was something that was forgotten out of this election, that Barack Obama did have uh, higher than he usually did, although he had the average lowest uh, polls in modern memory month by month over eight years until the very end. But my point is I think there was a lot of resentment against Hillary Clinton for your deplorable, irredeemable, why she cashed in with the Clinton Foundation, Secretary of State, in the same way there was with Obama. As far as Trump's actual first 100 days, if we divide it in two between domestic and foreign, I think the initiative is pretty clear. On the home front, he's called an extremist. I saw that Cher today said that she wasn't going to be able to treat her asthma because he repealed the Affordable Care Act, and therefore she, would, she has a $58 million Malibu estate, but she can't afford uh, an inhaler. So there was a, there's a fury about Trump in my hometown in Selma, California. I, I was there. 
this week, and a person said, my whole family is going to be deported. They're all U.S. citizens. I said, why would they be deported? Because we're Mexican-American. I said, that's not going to. But there's a hysteria about that. And uh, part of it is Trump's character that asked for it. But part of it is, I think this is really key to ponder, that we have moved so far to the left in the last eight years. And so far, we've become accustomed to the idea that this was going to be permanent, and it was just the beginning. The ACA Act was the beginning of single-payer. Identity politics was going to be the beginning one day of reparations um, that we didn't quite see where we were. So if you look at actually what Trump has done, he didn't, he didn't authorize the wall. That was authorized by Congress under George Bush. The first 600 miles were built by somebody else. All he said was, the law is there. I want to finish it. That, which used to be pedestrian, is now deemed radical. If you look at what he said about the Health Care Act, he didn't say, get rid of it all. I like this song. No preconditions. and 26, you can stay in your parents. But that had all been talked about by Bush. He's basically saying, I want to go back to the health care system maybe in 2005 or 6, where people had a competitive private insurer market and the government stepped in and helped people who couldn't afford the premium. It wasn't very radical what they're talking about and what will come out of the Senate, believe me. But now, in this climate, it cons it's considered it's anarchy or revolutionary, but we have to keep, I, keep some perspective. The same thing about, I, I read today trying to see if I get the latest 24-hour news that he's creating a militaristic state by giving the defense <laughs> budget an inordinate amount of money. We have the lowest GDP since the Korean War. We will have about less than 3%. All he's asking for is $57 billion over two years. It's not very much at all, but compared to where we were, it seems outrageous. He's going to destroy NATO. He's asking for a 2% contribution. I went back, and the most eloquent articulator of that position was Barack Obama in 2010. He went over to NATO, and he said, everybody's got to pay their 2%. And they said, oh, wow, he's so eloquent. He's charismatic. Maybe we can do that. And then they didn't do it. When somebody is orange with a coma over and a tie that hangs down to his knees, it sounds a little cruder, but the message is still the same. So you see what I'm getting at. What he's trying to do is basically go back to the United States as it existed in 2005 under George W. Bush. Not under Ronald Reagan. If you look at his tax code, it's not going back to 28%. It's going back to the Bush tax rates, essentially. It might be a little bit more Reagan-esque, but we're not in a revolutionary cycle at all. What's revolutionary is we have an outsider who never was a general or a politician and talks in a way that we're not accustomed to in a climate after eight years of Obamaism that had radicalized the country. The other thing he's trying to do, and it came up in our, some of our talks today, is that whatever identity politics we have, or the divisions between race, class, and gender, or what we see on the campuses, this can be reduced to the fact that we haven't had 2% economic growth in 10 years. So Trump, the business person, believes that Prosperity will make all of these divisions that are accentuated by stag a stagnant, calcified, or ossified economy, they'll make them irrelevant. So if you look at deregulation, two, two regulations have to go for every new one. Keystone, Dakota, uh, federal leasing of energy, again, a simplified tax rate with reductions for the, all the brackets, a radical reduction in capital gains tax, corporate tax rate, elimination of 
the estate tax, incentives for people to bring $2 trillion in capital back in investments in the United States. The whole subtext, what he's not talking about is I need 3% economic growth. 3% economic growth, problems disappear. The deficit is manageable. People in the inner city will be, beg will be begging, employers will be begging them for jobs. You close the border, we will not have competition. We forget sometimes that his position on illegal immigration is basically economic. If you heard what he said, not what people said he said, he said if we don't have 11 million people competing for jobs, then employers will have no recourse but to hire people at a higher wage. You can disagree or agree with it, but that was the point of it. And then he said we'll save $50 billion in annual remittances that are sent $25 billion to Central America and $26 billion to Mexico. So it was an economic argument. Job-owning countries is an economic argument. And that's basically where we at are right now, an attempt to turn us back to about 2005 and to get 3% economic growth. And it, it both terrifies and frightens the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, which is the Democratic Party, because if he's successful, he will be reelected. If he doesn't get 3% growth and he continues his excesses on Twitter, and he'll probably lose and it'll be a footnote to history. Abroad, we see a same predictable, what is the Trump doctrine? Nobody seems to be articulate. I think it's just realistic deterrence. I would call it the doctrine of realistic deterrence, which means he doesn't look at the world as a problem that where we need a Garden of Eden everywhere. We don't need a reconstructed Germany or Italy or Japan as happened after World War II. It'd be nice. We don't need an Emirates or you know, something like Kuwait or some of the rich coastal uh, kingdoms to be the model of the Arab world. He basically gave up on that after Afghanistan, Iraq. There's not going to be a Garden of Eden. It would be nice. It would stop conflict. It's not going to happen. He looks at it more like going out here and weeding the hillside. You're always going to have weeds. You just don't want them to grow rank. So you get your lawnmower out and you mow the lawn. But what you don't do is complain about the weeds growing. There's always going to be a North Korea. There's always going to be an Iran. There's always going to be a Cuba. There's always going to be an ISIS. Maybe it'll be a, called Al-Qaeda one day, ISIS the next. North Africa is always going to be a mess. And you, make, you redefine the rules and say, if you do the following, you're going to be in big trouble. Don't do something stupid. And that's very dangerous. It's very dangerous to lose deterrence, as we have the last eight years. But it's even more dangerous to try to regain it. So what he's trying to do with North Korea and Iran, ISIS, China, <coughs> Russia, is something along the following. He's saying to Vladimir Putin, the last eight years have been aberrant. This reset didn't work. You may have had right to Crimea after all. It was some of the great battlefields of World War II and the Crimea, 100,000 Russians killed. Ukraine, largest encirclement in the history of a military army. 600,000 Soviets were encircled with the Kiev pocket. We understand you have historical claims, but you're not going to go into the Baltic states. We're not going to reset with you. We might have missile defense. We're going to have a new normal. And what was in the past was abnormal. He's telling the Chinese, you're not going to be dumping stuff on us anymore. The Spratly Islands, maybe we can't kick you out, but there's not going to be any more artificial bases that uses, user, use these islands as a hinge to adjudicate trade going in. 25% of the world's commerce going into Asia. He's trying to tell Assad, you can, this red line was an aberration. The United States really doesn't usually do that, set red lines and then ignores them. 
and we're not going to let you use sarin gas again, and we don't believe you ever got rid of it. You may have been able to convince the Obama administration, but we never believed that. And then he's telling Iran, we would have never signed this deal. We know that we had to define down inspections to almost a worthless concept. We understand you still cheated and went on missile development outside of the protocol. We understand you got 400 million at night on a pallet for ransom. We're not going to do that anymore. And that seems radical, and it seems uh, brinksmanship. But basically, it's not Donald Trump. It's H.R. McMaster and Jim Mattis and the people who work for them are trying to establish an idea that we can't change the world the way we want it to, but we can make it an orderly and safer place through threatening people to use force. Soft power is great, but it doesn't exist without a threat of force. And after you do it one or two times, you probably won't have to do it every time. I quoted, I think, at the retreat a famous quote by Lord Halifax. We don't, 18th century famous British uh, theorist of law, he says, we don't hang horse thieves because they took a horse. We do it so other horse thieves won't think they can steal a lot of horses. And that was the concept of deterrence. So I think they're saying once we stand up in the Persian Gulf or we set Putin straight or we deal with North Korea or we drop a Moab bomb, whatever it is, people will get the impression that it's, it's, there's a system now and there are certain things you cannot do and certain things you can do. And it's based on a, a realistic appraisal of what war is. I don't think the Obama administration knew what war was. They felt that it was a, always caused by a miscalculation or an accident or misunderstanding between, between two equal parties. It never is. It's usually throughout history an inability to apprise relative strength. It would be just like all of you in this room have companies, and some are stronger than others. Well, the, the ones with the weaker companies would like to take over the strong ones, but you don't because you know how strong they are and what they're going to do to you. But if you didn't know that, or if you thought that somebody thought those rules didn't apply, then you'd all be trying to fight each other, and we'd have to find out through a war who was strong and who was weak. And so what this administration is trying to say is we are strong, the United States. We're much stronger than any of you, and we want to show you now so you don't try something stupid. France, Britain, Russia, and the United States were much stronger than an anemic Italy and a one-dimensional Japanese empire and a Third Reich that in terms of aircraft, tanks, trucks, was way behind not just the United States and Russia, but even France and Britain in 1940. But they didn't know that because of appeasement, Russian collaboration, American isolationism. Then we had a 60 million dead person war. And after the end of the war, it was sort of, wow, Russia, United States, and, and Britain were stronger than those guys all along, weren't they? And that's what war is. It's a laboratory. And so we're trying to tell people, don't do certain things because we will crush you. We don't want to, but we don't need a war to prove that to you. This is final thing about foreign policy. Is I think that in, under this realistic deterrent doctrine, they're saying, yes, General Sisi in Egypt, or Durette in Philippines, yes, they're thugs, they're autocrats, but they're no more thuggish or autocratic than the people that we dealt with in Iran, the people we deal with in China, the Castro brothers that we dealt with in Cuba. The only difference is they kind of like the United States better than those people did. So Trump is trying to say, yes, they have no human rights, so what? Cuba doesn't, Iran didn't, but you didn't, you didn't bitch when Obama did it. And so from now on, we're going to, you know, as 
Cornelius Sella said that Jim Mattis likes to quote all the time, the United States will be known as a country that has, it's no better friend and it's no worse enemy. And that's what we're trying to do. Let me conclude with what's the future of all this? Where, where does the Democratic and Republican parties go after this? I'm, I hinted at the Democratic Party. It seems to me that if Trump is successful in restoring international order, if he can, can, he can curb his, his character excesses to a degree that they become funny rather than obnoxious, and he can achieve 3% economic growth and sort of restore a 2000, 1990s, 2005 climate in the United States, then it's going to be very hard for the Democratic Party to beat him. The only way to beat him would to go after that 150 to 250,000 voters in the Midwest and have a populist appeal, working class issues, and play down identity hyphenated politics. And if you did that, you could probably win. Are they going to do it? Well, the nominal leader of the Democratic Party today is Bernie Sanders, who's never been a registered Democrat. He's an avowed socialist. If you look at uh, Dianne Feinstein or Steny Hoyer or Elizabeth Warren or Jerry Brown, I mean, I'm getting old, but I don't consider myself a young person at 63. These people are in their late 60s, but more often in their late 70s and 80s. It's a geriatric class. So what they're doing is, you remember 1968, Hubert Humphrey ran against Richard Nixon. Nobody liked Nixon. They said he couldn't win, especially after being trounced in 1962 and for the governorship of California. In a very hard-fought election, he, he beat Hubert Humphrey by half a percentage point, less than 250,000 votes. And the only reason that Nixon won, if you were going to be analytical about that election, you'd say the Chicago Convention was a mess televised young kids uh, attacking the police on TV and the Democrats couldn't stop it. And then second, crazy George Wallace came in and he got 12.5% of the Democratic vote and he won five southern states and he got five more to tip to Nixon by taking Democratic votes. And therefore, we're going to learn from this. Next time, we're going to run a candidate and say, we'll beat Nixon, but we will not allow a Democratic working class third party guy get in the race because we'll appeal to the working class and we won't put hippies on TV shouting obscenities and we'll win just like Hump. We'll have a Humphrey platform and what do they do? They said that no, 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 the 1971 Voting Act gave the, the right to vote to 18 year olds. It's a whole new story and people quietly said well 18 year olds are polling 52, 48 conservative. This will help Nixon. They said no, no, no. Once they see us, we're the party of youth with Civil Rights Act. We brought on a whole new demographic, and they nominated a hardcore leftist, George McGovern. And Richard Nixon won 60, almost 61%, third largest landslide in U.S. history. And if things don't change, that's the trajectory right now of the Democratic Party, if they go down that route. And they seem to be going down that route. This hysteria, this Stephen Colbert type of rhetoric, it's... it's turning people off, and it's the greatest gift that's ever been given, along with Barack Obama. Because the Republican Party inherited from Obama state legislatures, governorships, Senate, House, Supreme Court presidency, and now uh, from his successors, they're inheriting a good shot uh, to win more seats in 2011, uh, 2020, the presidency in 2018, more seats. As far as the Republican, the interesting question is, where does the party go? 
because, as I said, the Republican Party is very ambiguous and paradoxical. On the one hand, they, they privately concede without Donald Trump, we probably would have lost the election. We couldn't have won those swing voters in the blue, the blue wall. We couldn't have crumbled it. We couldn't have defeated him. On the other hand, we don't really like him because he's not an orthodox conservative. We like the tax reform, deregulation, and we're willing to put up with 75%. We love Neil Gorsuch, so he's sort of good. But we haven't really had that out yet. And there's four or five issues where Trump is winning and popular because he's not a Republican. And you know what they are. He's saying about trade, take trade, the Republican orthodox. And we know that in classical economics, that's what works, free trade. But Trump comes along and says, well, wait a minute. When we run up all these trade imbalances, that's not fair. They're cheating, they're dumping, they're currency manipulating. And people who are, don't have access to globalization or globalized jobs in the Midwest get hurt. The Republican establishment comes back and says either one of two or three things. They say, well, it's unsustainable for those countries to subsidize and dump stuff. We wouldn't want to do that because it's unproductive. And eventually, they'll have a rendezvous with it. Yeah, eventually they will, but not in the immediate. And then they're gonna, they'll say, well, you know, it, it makes us more competitive. When you get in cheap South Korean steel or Chinese manufactured products, uh, we have to, if we want to compete, we have to get lean and mean, and it's always a good pressure point. Or they'll say, you know what, in a 2% growth economy or less, it's good to have Walmart with all that cheap consumer stuff. So it's a win-win stuff for us. Or they say, we're the world's leader of the free world. We have to take an economic hit so that we have everybody in the same team. We don't want a trade war between Germany and France, the United States. So we'll take the, the knife in the back and we'll sacrifice as a world leader. All those arguments, Trump comes along and says no, because they hurt this, this working class. So we're, he's created this new term. I mean, it was an old term, but he's given it new resonance. Fair trade, not free trade. So if I talked to a person that about this in the administration. He said, you know, if dumping is so good and trade deficits are so good and they don't matter, it makes you more efficient, let Germany try it for 10 years. And let's see China see how great that is so it can lead its nations by taking trade hits. Maybe it can win over, all over Asia by running a trillion dollar trade deficit in five years. Let them try it, but we're not gonna do it anymore. That's a very, that's a fault line that the Republicans are gonna have to face. Second one is immigration, illegal immigration. The Republicans thought that Basically, illegal immigration could be winked and not it was okay for two reasons. One, employers got access to really good workers at cheap prices, especially in the hotel, agriculture, construction, manufacturing. And second, that people from Latin America and Mexico were ideal family voters, family values voters, that because of issues like abortion, family size, religion, they would eventually sort of be like Italian Americans. But they didn't realize that when you have an open border and one million people are coming every day that the old melting pot ingredients of assimilation, intermarriage, and integration get slowed down. And you start getting large ethnic blocks that appeal to identity politics and empower the Democrats as the party of entitlement. Trump comes along and says, no, I don't take the Republican position anymore. It undermines the law, it undermines equality under the law, it drives down wages of working class people, and uh, it creates blue states. <laughs> it did that, it'll turn Texas blue someday, it's turned New Mexico and Colorado, we're not gonna do it anymore. That was, a, that was just a blasphemy. And yet that is sort of the Republican, they're, they're forced to accept that very unorthodox position on immigration as they did on trade. 
And again, as I said on foreign policy, the, Demo the Republican Party's idea was that engagement, alliances, the global order, the United States sacrifices economically, it, it, it pays a lot for its military and it subsidizes the defense of other countries. It's engaged, it's sort of soft on global warming. Uh, if you're opposed for it, it goes along with it. It goes along with what it has to do to keep a block of like-minded liberal democracies as the as head of Western culture and by extension globalization. Trump comes along and says, you know what? I don't particularly like the European Union. Brexit was a good idea. We're going to have to really stiff arm those NATO countries to get their 2% up. And uh, I don't see the big plus for the United States in this global order. There is, but he didn't see it. And so he's created another fault line, mostly rhetorical, because people that work for him, like Mattis and McMaster, I think, use him as, please pay the 2% because we have a nut on our hands if you don't. <laughs> or please, South North Korea, don't do that because we don't know what Trump is capable of. But that's another fault line. How do these, re how do, are these fault lines resolved? If Trump can achieve this mythical 2-5 or 3-5 economic growth, and if he can avoid a large war, then I have a feeling that the new voter will be a permanent one, and the new voter that enters the Republican Party because of these issues and this unorthodox stance on trade, the economy, immigration, and not nation-building, anti-neoconservative nation-building, will be very important because he's not one voter. I'm worth nothing to the Republican Party as a resident of California, no matter what I do, except vote in a local election for a gerrymandered candidate, uh, I can affect things. These voters in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, to a lesser extent, the Carolinas, Colorado, especially Pennsylvania, they have much more power than we do. And if you can keep them in the party like that, people are going to catch on that this was not the demographic future that we all we're told that was going to be inevitable. That Carl Wolfe said, "You have to join. You can't. You can't fight." So, where are we right now? To conclude, we've got these Republican civil war. We've got this angry Democratic opposition to Trump that's on hinge and it's heading toward a 1972 showdown. And I think there's at least a 50/50 chance that Trump can pull it off. And if he does, uh, the Republican Party as we see it won't be the same. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.